You're listening to the Murder Speaks Podcast, the show that spills the tea about true crime. Here's your host, Wendy Hinbest. Please welcome my guest, Jack L. High, who's a writer and speaker. He's the author of the book, The Lost Brothers, A Family's Decades-Long Search. He's also the host of the investigative true crime podcast, Long Lost. Jack, welcome to Murder Speaks. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you, Wendy. You're very welcome. So let's get started. So, Jack, can you please tell everybody what you write? I write articles and books uh, primarily on the topics of crime, history, mm-hmm. science, medicine, and business. And I've been doing it um, for for many years now and have a great time at it and really enjoy it. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> yeah, true crime is definitely my forte. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, so when did you first realize you wanted to be a writer? Well, I had thought about being a writer when I was uh, a kid in middle school and high school. But I first thought about it seriously um, in my 20s. Okay. And I was talking with a friend who had become a um, entry-level editor at a city magazine, and she suggested that I start uh, proposing some stories for the magazine, which I did, and those stories were published. Nice. So I, I wrote a lot for magazines and then began writing um, books in the 1990s. And uh, I have to say that writing books is really my first love when it comes to writing. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah, I like writing too. (laughs) Well, you must. Yeah, I love it. I've written a couple of books myself. Um, Well, I've written kids' books, and then I wrote wrote my first novel in 2016, and I'm writing another one right now. Um, But yeah, I I totally get the idea of I love writing as well. And writing fiction is hard. Yeah, it really is. (laughs) You, you, You have to, like, try to find inspiration when you're writing fiction books. And, you know what I mean, do a lot of reading yourself. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. It has to come from within. You know, when I'm I'm writing about crime or history, uh, those topics are coming from without. And, yes, it's uh, challenging and um, and not easy to do all the research and structure the story and, and write it. But it's a different process, I think. But it's so much fun to write crime. Like, those are the kind of books. Like, my books are... They're not crime, but they are. Like, I write murder, like, murder stories. Like, I, I'm so into, like, writing, like... it's. I think it's a lot of fun writing, like, a murder mystery and stuff. That's the kind of books I like to read and write. Mm-hmm. So, like, yeah, definitely. Um, okay. Can you please tell us about your book? Yeah. Um, my book, The Lost Brothers, A Family's Decades-Long Search, was published recently in 2019 by the University of Minnesota Press. I began working on this story um, more than 20 years ago, um, and it all started one Sunday morning when I was reading the newspaper and came across an ad in the paper uh, put it put in there by the family of these three missing boys. Okay. They were, they were looking for information about the boys, and they noted in their ad that these boys had these um, young brothers who were. Um, four, six, and eight years old at the time, had disappeared in 1951. Wow. So here this was in 1997, 
Um, it was still more than 40 years after the fact of their disappearance, and they were still looking. Wow. And so I um, tore out the ad and called the number that was listed in the ad a couple of days later and spoke with the mother of the boys. Uh, her name was Betty Klein. And um, she told me the story. I, I went up to, to uh, I live in Minnesota in Minneapolis, and she lived about a one-hour drive north of Minneapolis. So I drove out to her farmhouse where she and her husband lived and heard the whole story from her, uh, which was that her three little boys, Kenny, uh, David, and Danny, went out one Saturday afternoon to play in the park a couple blocks from where they were then living in Minneapolis and never came home (gasps) and uh, just disappeared. And so they called the police. The police would not do anything until the boys had been missing for 24 hours. I hate uh, that rule. (laughs) I I don't think it's a rule uh, anymore in modern times, but I think it was a pretty common rule back in the 1950s. And so once the police got into action, they did a search, got tracking tracking dog, um, combed the neighborhood, and essentially found nothing uh, except for uh, the caps of two of the boys in the Mississippi River, which was about a mile from where they disappeared, on the ice. This was November, so there was ice on the river. The caps were on top of the ice, suggesting that uh, the caps had been placed there. And uh, the police, uh, from, from that meager evidence, the police assumed that the boys had drowned in the river and closed the case after five days. And um, Betty and her husband, Ken, would not accept that. And for the remainder of their lives, they both lived many more decades, uh, kept searching for their boys, uh, hiring private investigators, um, consulting psychics, uh, uh, following up on leads themselves, trying to get law enforcement to get back into the investigation. And unfortunately, uh, didn't get any answers before the two of them died. Uh, Ken died uh, in around 2006, and Betty died um, about six years after Ken. Uh, that's too so, so I wrote an article. This was back in 1998. I wrote an article for a um, regional magazine, Minnesota Monthly, about it, but kept in touch with the family. And in 2013, I got an email from a sheriff's deputy in the uh, county where the Klein family had moved after the boys disappeared. Okay. And they t- and, and she told me that she and her deputy partner were working on the case on their own time and had accumulated everything that there was out there, put it all together, done, uh, done much more than the Minneapolis police had done in 1951. And, um, had come to some conclusions and identified some suspects, which I thought was incredible with such an old case. Yes. So that, that's when I decided to re- start writing about it again, and uh, that's when it turned into the book, The Lost Brothers. Wow, that's, an, that's fascinating. Wow, what a story. I feel so bad for them, though, that they, that, 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 that they couldn't live to, to even see. I mean, I know that they haven't found the boys or anything, but even to live to even see, like, just for that to happen. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. and um, I agree. It's tragic. And so there's really two stories, two threads of story in the Lost Brothers. One is, of course, what happened to the to the brothers back in 1951. And then the other is about the Klein family, because in addition to the three missing brothers, Betty and Ken had uh, had five other children. Um, one of them was older than the missing boys, and the other four came after their brothers disappeared. All, all boys. And um, so I had a question about how this family survived, especially the parents, course, but also the brothers, uh, the one who knew his brothers who disappeared and the others who never met their brothers who disappeared, how they got through it all and why they were continuing the search. Wow. Wow. Sounds like a really good book. <laughs> Well, it was, it was satisfying to write um, because of the work of those sheriff's deputies. Of course, who, yes. Um, uh, there's new, there is new evidence. There's suspects. There's new stuff to write about. And I'm hoping that the case is close to being solved. Yes. I want to know when that happens. <laughs> Definitely. Well, the world should know when, when it's solved because it would, uh, it would be historic um, for a cold case that's almost 70 years old to be definitely so i was going to ask you what inspired you to write the book but i guess you answered that question (laughs) yeah okay so how long did it take you to write the book well it depends on when you start as i said i began researching it in 1997 but then there were many years uh in between then and now when i wasn't doing much work but the book itself uh, it took a couple years to write and to research and write. Wow! Wow! No, I, I know. I was looking at your website, and I noticed you have you have a podcast called Long Lost. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us what your podcast is about. Long Lost tells the story of the missing Klein brothers, but it tells it from a completely different perspective. Uh, because, as you know, the strengths of telling a story in a podcast are very different from the strengths of telling a story in a book. Yes. And so um, in in the podcast, Long Lost, uh, which uh, which I wrote and, as, as you said, host, but it was produced by Twin Cities PBS, the, um, the, the podcast relies on audio material. Mm-hmm. So that a lot of new interviews with client family members, the investigators who worked on the case, and others involved in the case. And... Um, some historic audio material, news coverage when the boys went missing in 1951, and other things like that to tell the story through sound instead of through the printed word. And so I would say it, um, it's emotional because all the voices of the family members are in there. Um, it's, it's a different way to tell this, this tragic um, story. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like it. Okay, so how many books have you written altogether? And if you had to pick one book, which one would be your favorite? I've written about 15 books over wow. the years. That's good. And half of them are books like The Lost Brothers that uh, are, you know, are trade books, bookstore books, books you would get in a bookstore yeah. from a book retailer. And then the other half are books that were commissioned uh, for for me to write. And many of these are corporate history books, 
history of company histories of companies that the companies wanted written for their employees or for their customers or business partners. Uh, so, so there's about 15 of those. And my favorite book is always the one that I'm working on now. So I do have a book uh, in the works right now. It doesn't have a title yet, but it's about a face transplant patient in the United States. And his uh, face transplant, which happened in 2016, mm-hmm. probably the most successful of the 60 or so face transplants that have been done around the world to date. It was a uh, young man who at about the age of 20 attempted suicide and shot himself in the face and did not kill himself um, and uh, lived for many years with a disfigured face, but then began talking with his plastic surgeon about the possibility of a transplant receiving a face from a donor and um, realized that that could change his life. So uh, they prepared for many years for that. It's a really complex, unbelievably complex surgery to perform a transplant, face transplant, because wow. it involves um, the severing and then connecting of nerves, blood vessels, skin tissues, muscle tissues. Um, the surgery took four days. And um, it was a long recovery period, but uh, now that we are four years out, uh, he's doing great. He looks great. He just got married recently. Um, his wife is pregnant, and he feels very lucky to have been given this life back to him. Wow. So you must be doing like a, a lot of research for that book then, right? Yeah. It's a very interview-heavy book because I'm, of course, interviewing the patient, but also all of the doctors uh, at the Mayo Clinic who worked on his uh, treatment and his surgery. And there's a lot of them in different specialties. And then um, other people, uh, the the, uh, people at the company involved in finding the donor for the face and uh, that that man's family and um, uh, the uh, patient's friends, his family. By the end of it, I'll probably have done about 100 interviews. Wow. Wow, that sounds amazing. Okay. So, like, what is your biggest failure, and what did you learn from it? Yeah, when you um, sent me that question, Wendy, I thought about it a lot. I think I resisted the word failure a little bit because is it a failure if you, failure if you learned something from the mistake? Um, no, not true, not really. Yeah. But what, what comes to mind is a mistake I made some time ago when I was commissioned to write a biography. The only time that's ever happened that the, the family of a wealthy uh, business owner um, asked me to write a, a biography of, of the business owner. And um, so I got to work on it the way I would any other book, doing research and interviews. Okay. But along the way, the family was dropping hints to me that I should have paid attention to more than I did. And the hints were things like what they wanted uh, was a biography that would be like the kind written by uh, authors like David McCullough. He, he has written a lot of books about American presidents like John Adams and Harry Truman. 
and then another writer named Ron Chernow, who wrote the big fat book on Alexander Hamilton that the musical Hamilton was based on. And these are books that are very deeply researched. Mm-hmm. They're books, uh, you know, up to a thousand pages. And um, that kind of book wasn't possible for me to do in this case, because there wasn't the depth of, of manuscripts uh, for me to draw from that would allow for a book like that. What I had was some records, some papers, really not very many, and then a lot of interviews. And uh, so I went my merry way writing and produced the kind of book, a uh, first draft, that I would um, with that kind of source material, which it was uh, a book that tells a lot of stories about the person, anecdotal, uh, since I didn't have uh, paper records in depth to draw from. Mm-hmm. And so the family saw the first draft I wrote and made some suggestions and again mentioned, um, said something about um, David McCullough and Ron Chernow and, and big fat doorstop books like that. I revised the manuscript twice more after that and produced what I thought was a, a really good book given the what was available to me to use. But at that point, the family fired me uh, because I was not giving them what they said they wanted. Uh, I, I think it was impossible for me to give them what they wanted. And my mistake in this case was not uh, that I should have tried to give them what they wanted, but I should have told them early on that what they wanted wasn't realistic yeah, or possible. Um, and so that, and I think the lesson learned from all that is that writers of all kinds should be very conscious of their audience. Uh, most of the time, we think of our audience as our readers, but in this case, the audience for this commission biography was not readers. I didn't know who the readers would be for this book, yeah. but it was the family. Uh, they're the ones who are having the book made and paying me and uh, deciding whether the manuscript is up to snuff or not. And because of my poor communication and correction of what uh, their, their preconception was of how the book would turn out, um, they cut me loose and I learned my lesson. Yeah, there you go. And it was a learning experience, right? Oh, definitely. If the whole thing were to happen again, I'd for sure do it much differently. And you write primarily nonfiction, right? You don't write fiction. Right. I don't write any fiction. Okay. 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 And what is some advice you would give to someone aspiring to become a writer? I think there are a lot of qualities that go into being a successful writer, but many of them are overestimated. Yeah, I think yeah. talent is overestimated. There are a lot of t- very talented writers who don't achieve success, whatever that means to them, yeah, from yeah. their writing. There are a lot of hardworking writers who don't achieve success, a lot of smart writers. Um, what I have found is that the quality that's most important is qualities that are most important are persistence and tenacity. So in the case of my book, The Lost Brothers, this is a story that I began working on in 1997 and published as um, a book just in the last year. I stuck with it for a really long time. There's another story that I'm working on now that I began 10 years before that. 
wow. in the late 1980s. Uh, so, and there's an element of stubbornness in this, I admit, that once I come across a story that I think is great and, and that people should read and would like to read, I don't give up on it. Uh, I keep, keep it in mind, keep working on it, keep plugging away at it. So uh, persistence and tenacity and stubbornness also <laughs> are, the, are the most important qualities, I think, if you want to succeed as a writer. Awesome. Okay, and where can everybody find you online? Two places, I'd suggest. One is my website, which is uh, elhai.com. That's E-L-H-A-I.com. And I'm also active on Twitter. So if you like using that form of social media, you can uh, connect with me on Twitter. Uh, my handle on Twitter is Jack underscore E-L-H-A-I. Nice. Okay, there you go, people. <laughs> now we know where to find you online. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, Jack, it's been great having you. Um, your book sounds amazing. I'm definitely going to pick it up. Or is, is it available on Amazon? It certainly is. Yep. And also the podcast, Long Lost, is available through any place where you would get podcasts, like um, uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or really anywhere. Awesome. Awesome. Okay, well, Zach, thank you so much for being with me today, with us on Murder mm -hmm. Speaks. It's been and my Thank you. Yes, you're welcome. And thanks for doing, and enjoy the rest of your day, okay? You too. Thank you so much, Jack. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, let's get to this week's true crime story. So today's true crime story is about 27-year-old Alicia Seide from Hatfield, Wisconsin. She was married to Doug Seide. They met in 2004 and eventually got married and had twin boys. November 9th, 2008, Alicia went missing. On Saturday, November 8th, Alicia's sister gets a call from her husband, Doug, to ask if she has seen her. The police talk to Doug. He tells police a friend of his spent the weekend. He tells police he and Alicia got into an argument. Then Alicia walked away. People report they have seen Alicia at Walmart. So police view the surveillance footage, but they don't see her on the footage. Then the police realize people were seeing Alicia's sister, not Alicia. So the police speak to Alicia's friend, and she tells police Alicia was going to leave Doug. The police drive to Illinois to talk to his friend who was visiting for the weekend, and his story matched Doug's story almost too perfectly. So he becomes a suspect. Wednesday, November 12th, a woman finds a cell phone in the water. And it's the same make and model of Alicia's phone. The police talk to Doug's friend again. He tells the police what really happened, that Doug shot Alicia. You know, I finished my beer. I actually bought a six pack to go. Mm -hmm. And I mean, literally, yeah. 100 feet to his house. Right. And around 7.30 is when we were back at his house. Right. And I had like three hours of sleep the night before. I was done. Right. So I laid down for a while and that was uh, around 8-ish. I was out. I was out like a light. No, I was, I was out to the world. We wanted to come down and try and just nail down some times with you because we're talking to a lot of different people. Okay. And uh, 
Some of the times are matching up, some of the times aren't matching up. I'm still just really stunned by it all. When you hear about this shit on TV or in the papers, I just don't understand what would make him snap like that. What happened that night? When they came out. Mm-hmm. He just told me he shot over the shot. <laughs> she had a sheet over it. I'm like, what the hell did you just do? What happened? And he said he had to, he had to go get rid of the body and he took off. And I was thinking about the kids. I was thinking, God, I gotta stay so don't do anything stupid to them. I'm sorry I didn't tell you anything on Wednesday. I should have. The dive team find a gun in the water. It's Doug's gun. So the police talk to Doug again. And he admitted to shooting Alicia. He tells police she threatened to leave him and take the boys. She told me that she would take the twins and she would run off and I would never, ever, ever find them. I really thought that this time she wasn't just running her mouth like she always did because she was a mouthy, mouthy, mouthy person. And I thought she was over. I don't remember a lot, honestly. I don't. I just, you know, people say they saw red. We walked back to the house. And she turned around to say something else smart to me. And I just. Her body was found in the woods. The boys were adopted by her cousin. Doug was sentenced to life in prison. Doug's friend wasn't arrested for cooperating with the police. All this time he was playing the sad, heartbroken husband, and he was the one that killed her. Thank you very much for joining me on this week's True Crime Story. If you like it, please share it. Sharing is caring. And if you are a true crime addict like me, check out my store, crystalkiss.com. That's crystal with a K for some murder merch. I sell t-shirts, hoodies, leggings, and tank tops. Free shipping on all orders, so check it out. Don't forget to subscribe. Thanks. Bye.